Um, but we're going to be going through a 10-part series in this book, and we are starting part one today. I entitled today's lesson, Alignment. And we're going to talk about lining up with what God has for you so that he can bless you with what he has in store. Um, and I want to begin, as we talk about the reasons and the benefits of wisdom, with a bit of a warning. And it comes from Oswald Chambers. The quote is on the sheet in front of you. Oswald Chambers, who wrote My Utmost for His Highest, said this. God never gives us discernment. We can put under that title wisdom, knowledge, what have you. God never gives us discernment in order that we may criticize, but that we may intercede. It's very easy to go into a study on Proverbs, get a bunch of information, think that you're now more intelligent and you become a jerk. You become arrogant because now you have the secret codes and the secret passwords. And so you're going to be mean to everybody else. You're going to walk out into the world and tell everybody else where they're not living wisely. That's not what the book of Proverbs is for. The book of book of Proverbs is a study in God. It's a study in God's ways. It's a study that you might slowly get your act together so that you can become a light for other people. So that when they're hurting, when they're confused, when they're lost, you can say, well, why don't we sit down and talk over a cup of coffee? Let me help you sort it out because God has given me some clarity and I may be able to give some clarity to you. The purpose of gifts that are given by God is always for the distribution of loving on other people. It's not all about you to where you then feel like you have something over someone else. This should also be a study in the issue of humility, that we might be able to know what God wants for us and then be able to use it properly. But I want to begin this morning with a rhetorical question for you, and it's this. Why are the world statistics and the church statistics of life so dramatically similar? Uh, let me give you an example. You can go through and study them through the Barna organization, through Gallup poll, whoever you want to examine, and they will show you this. The divorce statistics are almost identical in the church than they are on the outside. The uh, medication statistics are the same. The depression statistics are the same. And it goes on and on and on. And the question is, why is that so? Doesn't Jesus make a difference? I think that if we begin to say that, and some of us would argue and say, well, hold on, the statistics are skewed. Just because the church statistics are that, that doesn't mean everybody in the church is living for the Lord. Those living for the Lord may have a different statistic than the world. And granted, that is the case. But don't you think even if it changes five to ten points, we're still scary close to the world? I mean, there's not enough of a divide that should be there. Okay, having said all that, I believe that if we ever say, well, doesn't Jesus make a difference? We've confused two categories. We're confusing people that are sinners in need of grace with wise living. Those are two different categories. In order to make this point, I give you a fill in the blank. It's very simply this. Getting saved doesn't make you wise. But it's a start. Getting saved doesn't make you wise, but it's a start. Let me say it another way that might be a little bit easier to remember. You can be saved and be stupid. Are we all clear on that one? You can be saved and be stupid, but it shouldn't stop there. It should move on. And you would say, well, but I thought that Christians are supposed to be different than non-Christians. Well, yes, but let's remember, it all depends on where you start. C.S. Lewis said, 
in order to find out whether or not Christianity makes a difference, you can never hold two people up and compare them because they're starting at different points. The only way to know whether or not somebody is if Christianity truly makes a difference is to examine a person with Jesus and then that same person without Jesus. Was there a difference? Because here's the problem. Some people that have never known the Lord grow up in morality-based homes. They grow up with this idea of Ten Commandments, don't steal, don't do this, don't do that. They even have different social mores that have been driven into them. Don't do drugs, don't do this. And they grow up looking more wise than Christians. Then you got Christians who grow up in such massive dysfunction They feel like they have started 30 yards behind everybody else. So even though they've been walking in the Lord for five years, they feel like they can't even get a control over their very own life. My point is, don't ever match two people against each other. That's foolishness. You must match a person with Jesus and then without Jesus and see if there is a difference to know whether or not Christ makes a difference. But should Christians live differently than the world? The answer to that is yes. How do we know that? Because the Bible very clearly tells us to live differently. Why? Because Jesus walked differently. And we're supposed to walk like he walked. An examination of wisdom is not an examination of some external code. It's the examination of the ways of God. See, I believe that we are held to a higher standard than the world. Because God laid out a very clear pathway for us. God gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us. And God talks to us all the way through it. If we get all those helps and the world gets none, don't you think we should be walking differently than them? Does that make sense? I think it's okay for us to be held to a higher standard. Listen, 2008 is the year of world impact at Bridgeway, right? If we want to make a world impact, I'll tell you one way that I view would be the most dramatic way to make an impact. And I call it lifestyle evangelism. You guys have heard that. That's a pretty common phrase that's used in the church today. What does it mean? It means how you live. If you live in concert with or if you live in agreement with the ways of God, you begin to look different. Wise living is an amazing magnet for the lost. Here's what I mean. Whenever I'm asked to speak to anybody, whether or not it's uh, at a seminar or at a conference or at another church or at the college, wherever I'm asked to speak or whether or not I'm asked to go into the counseling room and speak to somebody about their marriage or whether or not I'm asked on a one-on-one discipleship basis to talk with someone, usually they're not asking me to meet with them because of what I think about Jesus. They're usually asking me to meet with them because they deem me to have wisdom that they want to tap into. In other words, when the world is totally lost in confusion, they want to go to something that's solid. They want to go somewhere and say, can somebody please help me make sense of my life? I'm in total chaos and I don't know how to get out of it. But when they turn around and look at Christians and Christians are more screwed up than they are. Where do you turn? Why do you want to go and seek wisdom from or find out about their Jesus when they have more issues than you do? And I feel that's how the world looks at Christians. They're thinking, you got so many hang-ups, you got so many problems, you have nothing to offer me. I think the more and more we line up with the ways of God and start living in consistency with our faith, the more and more the world begins to get attracted and go, hold on a second, why are you doing that? Why are things seemingly 
going more smoothly with you? Why is why is the world beginning to open up for you? Why is it that you're not constantly having to look over your shoulder because of all the enemies you've created? Why is my life so complicated and your life simplistic? But I'm not seeing that happen in the church very often. I'm not seeing it happen in our lives very often. But if it began to happen, don't you think people would begin to ask a little bit more about the hope that lies within? Because they can't see what you're thinking about God. They can't read your mind. They only see your actions. And your actions speak louder than your words. Christians are real good at talking. Talk, 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 talk about everything. But then everyone will look and see how your lifestyle rolls. Then they'll determine whether or not they want to hear about your Savior. You know, I believe that it would just be a dramatic way to impact the world if we began to line up with what we're about to read in the scripture. Would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter one, verse one? It's page 449 and the Bible's handed to you. 449 Proverbs chapter one, verse one. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction to this book. First of all, this is a random collection of wisdom sayings. It is almost as if when Solomon reigned, he was he was spewing out or dispensing wisdom on a daily basis. And then periodically guys would go, dang, that was a really good one. Somebody got a pen, write that thing down. And then they would write that one down. And wow, that was another good one. They'd write that one down and then everyone kind of gather them together at some point. Solomon lived around the 900 B.C.s. Some of these things weren't collected and put together till the time of Hezekiah, which was in 760 B.C., a hundred and forty years later. So you have to understand there was a lot of compilation that put this book together. In other words, when you read it, you start going, well, wait a second. What do these two things have to do in common? Wait a second. They're jumping around. Why are you jumping around? Then I read this and you just repeated yourself again. You already told me to stay away from the adulteress. Do I really need to hear it eight times? You see what I'm saying? You keep going through this. My point in saying all this is this book forces me to do something that I hate. I am an expository preacher. I preach verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter. I go through books of the Bible. That's what I do. That's where I'm comfortable. This book forces you to go through topics. And I hate doing that. Freaks me out. I'm totally paranoid that I'm going to screw everything up and I'm completely messed up that somehow I'm going to insert my own opinion into this thing. But it forces you to break apart all of Proverbs into all its many different pieces and then compile them together in logical topics. So what I've done is just that. I've broken it up into ten topics that we're going to be covering through this ten-week period. Then I grab the full counsel of God in Proverbs on that specific topic. And so we'll be examining what Solomon's wisdom is for us in any given area. These topics are going to be things like... Who do I hang out with? Who should my friends be? Everything to how should I act at work? What is my work ethic? To what about leadership? What about leading a godly family? What does a godly wise woman look like? What does a wise man look like? How should we train our children? How should we react to our parents? All this stuff is encapsulated in this incredible book. So every week we'll be grabbing one of those elements and studying it to the nth degree to find out what God wants us to do. Is that worth showing up for? I think that's kind of exciting. I think it's going to be kind of an awesome study. Solomon wrote it, but he didn't write it alone. There's at least three other authors mentioned. 
So there's some other guys that throw in some inserts, but Solomon wrote the vast majority. As a matter of fact, it says that Solomon at least wrote 1,500 Proverbs. We only have a couple hundred here in this book. He also wrote over a 1,000 songs. He's a pretty big writer, right? He didn't just write this book. Do you understand there's a couple other books that have his authorship on them? They believe that in his early years, he wrote the Song of Solomon. We've studied that as a church. They believe in his middle years, he wrote Proverbs. And then in his later years, after things started going south, because remember, he started out really awesome and he ended up pretty messed up. They believe that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in his later years as he was reflecting back on some of his poor decisions and the meaninglessness that he allowed his life to become. But there's one phrase, if you take notes, I want you to write this down because it will make all the difference in the world when you study this book. It's a very simple phrase. I want you to write this down and kind of beat it into your mind. And it's this. Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. Proverbs are probabilities, not promises. Why is that important to know? Because if God gives you a promise... It will always happen every time because God is faithful and will never break a promise. It's always right all the time. That is not what Proverbs are. You understand that? Proverbs are probabilities saying if all things given are considered, it will most likely be this outcome. It's an examination of how life is set up, and it's an examination of how God set up the universal order. But it is not a promise, because here's what we tend to do. You guys know what a magic eight ball is? Anybody know what those are? Those things freak me out. I'm totally convinced there's demons in them. Anyway, we move on. What we do is everything surrounds about us. We're the center of the universe. Everything has to do with us. And so what we do is we try to read the Bible for immediate application to us. So what we do is we open up the Bible and we go, God, show me a promise for me. And we shake it like an eight ball. We shake it and we go, God, am I going to get the car that I want? And we open it up and it says, the word came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews living in lower Egypt. Dang it, that doesn't apply. So we shake it again. And then we open up again and go, God, tell me your promises, right? Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get him stuck so that he has to do something for us. If you do that with Proverbs, you're going to run into trouble. What we like to do is we like to read phrases like, train up a child in the Lord while he's young, and then when he's old, he won't depart from it. And we go, that's a promise. Awesome. I'm going to hang on to that because God promised me that if I played the Bible on CD while my child slept while he was one years old, and I played it all night long, and I completely embedded it in their brain, they will die a Christian. Praise the Lord. Okay. That's not what the Bible said. It said, the probability is, is that if you lay a solid spiritual foundation for your children, then they will grow up and return to it even after trying to sort and find their own way. That's what it said. So we have this tendency to want to make everything a promise to where we know what we can get from God and get our hands around him. That is not what Proverbs is. Proverbs is probabilities. Having said all of that, let's take a look at the first seven verses to find out why the book was written. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, page 449, and the Bible's handed to you. Uh, begin like this. We'll read seven verses and then we'll pray this morning. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, 
for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you might open up our eyes to understanding your word, that, Father, as we do a study in wisdom, it's a study of you. It's a study of your nature. It's to know you more, to know what you desire, what pleases you and the ways in which we should walk as Jesus walked. Give us the strength to make the proper choices to minimize our self-created drama, our self-created chaos. And return to the simple path of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to understand something about wisdom. Wisdom in the book of Proverbs is symbolized or characterized or portrayed as a woman calling out to everyone saying, If you don't know, come to me and I will show you the way to live. But wisdom isn't just a woman, but I'd like to point out women is always feminine in Scripture. Props to the ladies, all right? Because God was like, if I'm going to give wisdom a gender, hmm, doesn't match with the guy so well, let's make it a lady. Okay, so that's good. However, it's not just this portraying of a woman, but actually wisdom is a person, a person by which we are very familiar. And in order to describe this, A little bit more in depth, would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Proverbs 8, 22. When I begin to read this, you're going to have little alarms go off in your head to say, wait a second, I've heard this somewhere before. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22. Wisdom is speaking and she says this. The Lord, or Yahweh, brought me forth as the first of his works, Before his deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began where there were no oceans. I was given birth when there were no springs abounding with water before the mountains were settled in place before the hills. I was given birth and before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of those deep. When he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Those words have been said in a slightly different way. In a familiar passage of John 1, 1, just listen to this. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Who is it speaking of? But Jesus Christ. It continues on in Colossians 1.15 by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Do those sound familiar? A study in wisdom is a study in God. For wisdom is made manifest in Jesus Christ. So to know wisdom is to know the ways of Jesus. Jesus walked in wisdom. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. Wisdom is not an external code. Wisdom is not a neutral. Wisdom is not something out there floating in space. Wisdom is a person. And that person is God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You will notice on your notes that I wrote down there are 20 blessings or benefits, I should say, and reasons for gaining wisdom. I wrote down 20 of those. I actually taught those last night in the sermon uh, that I taught at the 5 o'clock service, and I went 20 minutes long. I've cut them down for you. There are now seven. So you're going to go, we got ripped off. We should have had the longer version. You can get your money back at the door. That's fine. Here's the deal. I can take those 20 and put them into seven grand categories to make it a little bit easier for you. So I'm going to do that for you this morning. We begin with the first one, which is blessings in general. Why should we pursue walking in a wise fashion? Because God wants to bless his kids. Just this last week, uh, some of the pastors, we all had an opportunity to go out and hear Brennan Manning speak at William Jessup University. Have you guys ever heard of that guy, Brennan Manning? He wrote some pretty uh, popular books. He wrote The Ragamuffin Gospel. He wrote Abba's Child. He wrote uh, about 17 different books, I believe. Uh, brilliant guy, older guy. Um, so we listened to him, and this is a collection of pastors and leaders from all over the area. There were hundreds there. There was faculty and staff. These were very brilliant people. And so Brennan Manning came up and he told, he taught us two different sessions, one hour session, then a 10 minute break, and then another hour session. And here's what he taught. God loves you. He really, really likes you. That's it. That was his whole message. So we had two hours of that. God loves you. He really, really likes you. And his point was, he dares you to believe that God loves you not as you should be. But as you are, because none of us are as we should be. God loves you total now. God does not reflect or adjust based on your behavior because he is not a reflection of love. He's the source of love. So it's constant and it's complete. God loves you so much that it's almost as if that when he created you, he said, kids, we can do some exciting stuff together. We can have an amazing adventure together. We can go through this life. I'm not going to leave you. We can walk together. And as you follow my ways and my path, I will shower you with blessings and I will empower you to do everything that I want you to do. And I will call you home and you'll be with me forever. That was his joy. That's what he wanted. But that's not what we're living God wants so badly to bless his kids. He wants to give you good gifts. He wants to take care of you. He wants you to enjoy things. He wants you to have peace. But we keep messing it up. I want you to think about all the problems that face you right now. How many are self-created? Come on. Is it not the vast majority? 
The stuff you're wrestling with. Oh my gosh, I'm completely stressed out. You guys, the other night, I had a panic attack. Not last night, the night before. All night long, I had a panic attack. Now, you guys know I have panic disorder, right? So I already take medication for panic disorder. It's not like the meds weren't there. But I take a very, very tiny amount. So it still allows them to occur because I don't want to shut them off completely. That's, I, don't want my, I want my body to be able to tell me what's going on. I had this panic attack, didn't sleep all night long. I'm freaking out about everything. My heart's pounding. And if you guys have ever had a panic attack, your heart starts pounding. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it's going to explode. That's your first thing, which, by the way, your heart's not going to explode. But you don't know that at the time. And then all of a sudden your mind starts grabbing everything that's anxious in the room, and it makes it something scary. My dog sleeping on my bed, and it moved its leg. I was like, oh, what does that mean? And the dog's like, it, it means I have to stretch my leg. Leave me alone, dude. What are you waking me up for? Okay. My point is, is that I'm looking at it and there's still so much anxiety or there's different concerns and worries and everything else. Yet the Bible says, cast all your anxieties on him. The Bible says, bring him to him in prayer and petition and leave him there. The Bible says, why are you so worried about what everybody thinks about you? The Bible says all these truths and we keep complicating it. What am I freaking out about? I have no idea. But somehow... I'm believing stuff that God doesn't want to be true. You understand? God wants to bless us. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 3 is perhaps the most comprehensive chapter in the book about the blessings that God has in store for those that live wisely. It's kind of a catch-all. But it's pretty powerful. It says this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Jump to verse 13. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is far more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Jump to verse 21. My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Does that describe your life? I look at that and I say, well, a lot of it, yeah, but some of it, no. Does that describe any Christian you know? Are we living in that type of wisdom and victory? We're not. Then what's the problem? Is it that God hasn't come through in his promises or is that we are not choosing wisely as he's called us out to do? See, 
God wants to shower us with blessings. But when we ignore his word and we do things our own way, we ruin that process. Number two, God not only wants to shower us with general blessings, but he wants us to have long life ending in eternal life. What do I mean? It says that wisdom will prolong our life, add years to our lives, that our days will be many. If we pursue God in humility, he will extend grace to the humble. And then we are turned from death and through righteousness, it says, a future hope awaits. And in the end of that path, Proverbs 12:28 says, is immortality. Turn with me to Proverbs 10:27, and I want to show you something. Does God truly desire that we have long lives? Yes and no. But here's the probability. Proverbs 10:27 says, "The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short." Now, we can either make this really deep or we can make this pretty dang practical. Here's a lot of times what happens. Have you ever known of anyone that had a very successful life and they made a horrible decision and their life was cut short? Okay, is that not obvious? Have we not seen that happen to a million stars in Hollywood? Everything is going their way and then they get caught up in something bad and their whole life is cut short. That's the point. Is he said, if you pursue me and you go my way, I'm clearing out things ahead of you. But if you decide to go, you know what? I'm going to take a break from your way, Lord, and I'm going to go mainline heroin. (laughs) Then at that point, all of a sudden, you take too much and you die. Okay, an overdose cut short your life and God's going, hold on a second. When did I tell you to do that much blow? There's no way you can do that much drugs and keep moving forward. So, no, you're killing yourself. Stop doing that. Number three, we are shielded by God. What does it mean? It means the Bible says that if we live a life of wisdom, we will be untouched by trouble. We will be safe. We will be protected. We will be able to stand firm in a storm. We will be peaceful and restful even in our sleep. We will be kept from sinful snares. Turn with me to Proverbs 2, verse 6. You understand that the wicked are trapped by their own desires. God is trying to point them out to us so that we don't get trapped by our own desires. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that when you are tempted, God will provide a way out. So he actually will open up a door and wave his arms for you to get out. But if you choose not to follow that wisdom, you're going to die in that room. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, speaking of the Lord in verse 7, says he is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. Verse 11, discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. But the most practical way of saying it is found in chapter 22, verse 3. Turn there. Proverbs 22, verse 3. I love hearing all the little pages turn. Isn't that nice? Proverbs 22, verse 3. I love the practicality of Proverbs. It says this, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. 
Here's how God shields you. Sometimes it's supernatural. We recently, as an elder team, had to just engage with the demonic, right? And we were shielded supernaturally by God. So sometimes it's a supernatural shielding, but almost always the answer is God goes, look out, there's a hole. And you're not supposed to walk in it. That's actually how it goes. In other words, as you're walking down the pathway of life, there's some obvious pitfalls that you need to avoid. And so God goes, don't do that. It's going to lead you into a hole. And he gives you a really, really big instruction book that you're supposed to follow called the Bible, where he points out things ahead of time. That's wise living. How does God shield you? By going, don't do that. It's going to trip you up. But we need to follow that wisdom to not get tripped up. You can't just claim it and then walk however you want to walk. We have to follow what he called us to do. But not only will we be blessed and have long life ending in eternal life and be shielded by God, but number four, we are guided in life. What does it mean? Proverbs says that if we live wisely, we will have unhindered steps. Our paths will be made straight. We will be kept from stumbling. We will gain knowledge and understanding. With it, we will be able to understand God's sense of justice and we'll have the wisdom to lead others. Turn with me to Proverbs 6, verse 20. Proverbs 6, verse 20. God does not want this walk in life to be mysterious. He's trying to tell you clearly what you ought to do in the next step. He's walking right in front of you and saying, follow me. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20 says, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. Scoot a little bit forward. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life. God wants it to go well for you. But if you deviate off the path, it starts messing things up. Number five, prosperity. Proverbs says that if we follow the ways of wisdom, our treasuries will be full. We will have riches. We will have wealth. Our desires will be granted. And in fact, we will find love and faithfulness. Is that true? Hmm. Proverbs 10.24 says that what the righteous desire, they will be granted. Is that a promise? That if you do things wisely, you're all going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams? No. Do you understand how the health and wealth doctrine begins to pull this stuff out of context? This is a probability that if you continue to work with a solid work ethic and as you continue to do things God's way, not only will he have his hand of blessing upon you, but he will also stop you from making really, really dumb decisions that ruin everything. So many of us in our businesses and in our lives are in financial ruin, not because of external problems, but because of poor decisions we have made. God says, I want you to be content with what I give you. We say, I want more, and we end up running for riches and trapping ourselves. It's like over and over and over, we keep making it worse. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are so freaked out and worried about everything, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Jesus said it's supposed to be easier. As a matter of fact, sin complicates. Sin makes it harder. Righteousness pulls away the clutter and allows you in simplicity to do what you're supposed to do. You guys, is it easier or harder to live when you have bill collectors calling you every day? Come on. Is that practical, right? Is it easier or harder when you file bankruptcy? Is it easier or harder when you're in detox? Is it easier or harder when you can't go certain locations because you've dated all those girls and they all hate your guts? In other words, God is trying to pave the pathway and say, as we walk in wisdom, it makes it easier. And I want it to be well for you. Number six, if we pursue a lifestyle of wisdom, we will receive a good name and favor in the sight of man and of God. Turn with me to Proverbs 4, 7. What I mean by that is that the Bible says that even our enemies will be at peace with us. We receive honor. And when we rejoice, the whole city will rejoice. Do you realize there's some people in the city that everyone hates that if they went down, everyone would rejoice at their downfall? And then there's some people in the city that when they succeed, the whole city goes right on. If anyone deserves it, it's that girl. You see what I mean? It says that we will bring joy to our families and parents and that God will delight in us. What does Proverbs 4, 7 say? It says wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom, though it costs all you have. Get understanding, esteem her and she will exalt you, embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. Walking wisely gives you a good name. Walking like a fool gives you a bad reputation. Yeah. Finally, number seven, wisdom, if it's pursued, will give you health, power, strength and victory from God. Turn with me to Proverbs 4.20. What does it mean? It means you will be healthier in your body, the Bible says. You have the power and strength to make the tough calls to do the right things. You will have less obstacles in your life, and your life will be like a smooth highway. And it says, though the righteous fall seven times, yet will they rise again. You can't shut down a godly man or woman. Proverbs 4.20 says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Verse 22, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. You say, well, that's like metaphorical, right? No, that's literal. Why? How many statistics do you want to go through? You want to go through the men's health magazines and look at the statistics? I just read one, just had men's health uh, come to my doorstep and I'm reading through the statistics and it says, if you have a healthy marriage, you live longer. Why? Because it's really, really stressful. If you have a lot of stress in your life, you'll die sooner. In a matter of fact, it's said in black and white print from a non-believing institution, people of faith live longer. Why? Because there's a future hope, a future joy. There's a settledness. There's a peace that comes with knowing the Lord. And when you don't have that peace and you are riddled with anxiety, you age quicker inside. It's rough on your body to live contrary to God. To live in line with God, there is refreshment. 
Let me give you a prime example. When you know the joy of the Lord, it makes a difference in how you feel. Consider this. Let's say you're sick with a flu, and while you have the flu, you find out that your aunt dies. Do you want to get out of bed? Sure don't. Now your flu feels worse. You used to be physically sick, now you're emotionally sick. Now you feel like garbage. Then the next scenario, you're sick in bed with the flu, and you find out you just won the lottery. Suddenly, you get showered, and you're ready to go. Okay, here's the deal. Whenever good news breezes past you and and happiness flows into your life, it actually alters how you feel. So when you are walking around without Jesus, and you are hopeless, helpless, lost, in the darkness, not believing that there's anything after death, and if so, it's negative for you, that's got a weigh on your soul like a weight. But if, in fact, you begin to believe that God loves you, who you are right now, not for who you should be, but for who you are. If you begin to believe that Jesus Christ died and he died for your sins, past, present and future. If you truly believe that on the cross was removed all condemnation, all sin, all shame, all guilt, then shouldn't we live a little lighter? And that should bring health to our bodies. Listen, as we close, I want you to understand this. God desires to shower us with blessings. But when we don't live in wisdom, we ruin it. Couldn't be any more clear. Bad decisions make life worse. At some point, we have to grow up and realize that just because we're saved, that doesn't make us brilliant. That just because we're saved, that doesn't make us make good decisions. You have to choose to pursue wisdom. You have to choose to pursue knowledge. You have to choose to receive what God has for you and make the necessary alterations in your life that you can receive the blessings He wants to pour out on you. But having said that, you do realize that sometimes you can make all the right decisions in the world and bad stuff still happens to good people. Yeah? Sometimes it's got nothing to do with you. We live in a broken world. But the probability is that if you do it God's way, it will go well for your soul. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an exciting launch into the blessings that you desire for us to have. As we pursue your word, open up our eyes to what it is that you want for us. Lord, that as we begin to put all the pieces in place, as we begin to see you as you are, as we live a life of discipleship, as we walk as Jesus walked, would you allow us to know that we please you and that will go well for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.